Grab your copy of God's Word, though, and go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. How many of you guys growing up watched Sesame Street? Or maybe some of you still do watch Sesame Street. It's cool if you do, right? Man, I watched a ton of that growing up. Now, as a kid back in the 80s, there were only like five channels at my house, right? And some of y'all say, well, I remember when there was just one or two or three maybe, okay? But, but ABC, CBS, NBC, this new one in the 80s called Fox, and then PBS. And I mean, you just didn't have a lot of choices, even when I was an older child, uh, probably too old to be watching Sesame Street, it was either game shows and soap operas or, or Big Bird. Those were the options, pretty much. And so I watched a lot of Sesame Street growing up. And one of the recurring segments there on that show was to help kids to, to, to see how things are the same and how things are different. Things that go together and things that don't. And the little jingle went something like this. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? That's kind of how it went, okay? And so then they would show you like four things. Let's say like four different balloons. Three would be red and one would be blue. And the kid was supposed to say, oh, the blue one is different from those red ones. Or maybe they would show you four different kinds of shoes. But there were three tennis shoes and one boot. And, and you were supposed to say, and by the time I was 12, I had this down. <laughs> oh, it's the boot. The boot doesn't belong. I mean, the boot's different. Well, as we come here to Ephesians 5 and 6, we actually have been teaching on living in a spirit-filled family. A spirit-filled family. How members of a family are supposed to relate to one another. It's basically the New Testament domestic code, so to speak. It's what Martin Luther, he, he coined a, a German phrase, Hostafel, which in German means the house table. Well, we've covered wives, we've covered husbands, we've covered children, we've covered parents, and today we wrap up the Hostafel with slaves and masters. All of a sudden, that old Sesame Street song comes to mind. One of these things is not like the other. I mean, to our contemporary ears, I mean, that, that one's easy to figure out, right? If the topic is how a Christian household should operate, oh, slaves and masters, that doesn't belong. Wives and husbands, yeah, yeah, I mean, children and parents, of course. Slaves and masters? Are you kidding me? Yet right here in Ephesians 6, it's clearly there. It clearly relates to and is connected with what God has been teaching all throughout the last 20 verses here. I mean, to our contemporary years, even the idea of connecting slaves and masters to a teaching on a Christian household is offensive. It's incendiary. And boy, I'm just going to tell you right now, if I wasn't an expositional preacher who is committed to preach the whole counsel of God's word, verse by verse, this one would be a great one to just skip right over, especially given the cultural and social moment that we see going on around us. I mean, cancel culture is gearing up as I speak right now, yet here it is in the text. Therefore, it cannot, it cannot just be skipped over. Now, others might not skip over the text. But instead of preaching the text so that you can actually understand what Paul's intent here was, they just jumped straight to principles 
for modern application. And they start talking about employers and employees. And while there's plenty of correlation to that in the text, employees don't usually live with their employer. But slaves did live with their masters. And so the text itself, as Paul intended it, must be addressed. So we invite you to stand to honor the reading of the Word of God and just remember, remember, remember that God's Word is authoritative. It is true. If any of it feels out of step with us, it is us who is out of step. If any of it doesn't make sense to our modern mindset, we have to dig harder so we might understand how this fits into God's will for humanity. So let's pray together. Father, we ask, oh my goodness, Lord, you know, Father, how I have wrestled with this text. And maybe this morning is going to be the first time that this congregation has ever wrestled with this text, really. Maybe they've just glossed over it or, or, or they've heard application to, 20, uh, to, to 2020, but they've never really struggled with what is actually here. So, Father, I, I, just, I, I ask that you would help us today. Struggling over the Word of God is not a bad thing. So help us today, Father, to chew on something that is not easy for us to swallow. But, Father, we pray that you would help us to not only do that, but to digest it and to understand, God, what you mean for us here from this text. Your word is right and good. We ask this in the name of Jesus. The word of God says this as you stand, continue to stand. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both your master and yours in heaven, who is their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Thus ends the reading of the word of God this morning. Please grab your seat if you would. So as we think about slaves and masters, what seems like it doesn't belong according to our contemporary American minds belonged with great commonality in first century Rome where this is written into here. Households in general, even Christian households, contain slaves and master relationships. It's been estimated there were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Larger cities like Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, they had populations that were likely one-third slaves. And so Paul here, he's writing to the church in the city of Ephesus. And at that time, maybe had 250,000 people in it. And so if you do your math... There could have been something like 80,000 slaves in this city. Some were born into slavery. Some were prisoners of war who had been saved from slaughter and put into slavery. Some sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt. So there were certainly slaves and masters here in the Ephesian church, or Paul would not have mentioned it. There would have been no reason, right? These are occasional letters. There were things going on that he was writing to to help sort out. I mean, one of the books of the Bible actually bears the name of a slave master. The book of Philemon, who was there in the Colossian church. 
Now, I want to say to you this morning, it's really important for us to understand before we even dig into this text here, that we should not automatically import our American ideas of being a slave and a master into what the Bible's talking about here. When we hear the word slave, we, we automatically think about race-based chattel slavery of the antebellum South. We think of black people being kidnapped or conquered on the continent of Africa by other black people or by white people and being sold to white people and being brought here to America where they were treated as nothing other than living tools with no hope of ever being free. It was an involuntary slavery. They were paid nothing. Masters had complete rights over their lives. Many times they were treated very, very harshly. But we need to understand as we look at the word of God here is that that sort of slavery is very different. The one that we typically understand and know from history, very different from what was commonly practiced in Rome in Paul's day. Slaves under Roman law, they were regularly given the social status of their masters. From outward appearance, it was usually impossible to distinguish between a free person and a slave. It was not based on the color of your skin at all. They were not just laborers. Some were educated people like doctors and teachers. I mean, a few Bible scholars would even argue, they speculate that Luke, you know, the physician that traveled with Paul and attended to Paul who wrote the gospel of Luke and the, the acts of the apostles in the Bible here, some are convinced and speculate that he himself learned his profession as a slave because slaves were physicians even. Some would even argue, go as far as to say that perhaps Luke was still a slave when he was sent to travel with Paul. They were astute salesmen sometimes. They, they were even something like CEOs of a business. So don't me hear, as I say that, don't, don't hear me saying, though, that, that being a slave in Rome was awesome. It wasn't, right? No one, would, no one wanted to be that. There was no cakewalk. But they were still considered property to be bought and sold. There were still instances of great abuse, but the Roman system in Paul's day was actually more humane and civilized than slavery was here in America. Slaves in Rome, they could own their own property, completely control their own estate. They could invest, they could save to purchase their own freedom. Most slaves were free by the age of 30, either by their own hand or, or by their masters. Very few, according to what I read, reached old age as slaves. Many slaves even live separately from their masters. Although in the New Testament, we do have a word, a specific word for a house slave, a oiketes. But that word appears only four times in our Bible. However, we turn here to Ephesians 6, 5. And what word do we have? We have the Greek word douloi, which is the plural word for doulos. Right? Doulos would be the singular. Douloi, which we have here, is the plural, all right? That word appears in our Bible 126 times in the New Testament. And it has a range of meaning in English depending on the context. If you have the ESV, you can turn to the opening of your ESV and actually it gives a great explanation of why they translate one word in three different ways depending on the context. It could mean an outright slave. It could mean a person who's just taken on the role of a servant. Or it more specifically could mean a bond servant, one who in essence was temporarily under contract as a slave. The, the English phrase that we're probably more familiar with is, is, the, is the idea of an indentured servant. 
That would be an apt synonym to, to bond servant. And so many, many slaves, maybe even the majority of the slaves in Rome were not outright slaves. They were actually bond servants. And so that's why the Greek here is translated as bond servants and not as slaves here in the ESV. Yeah, they were slaves, but they were more like voluntary slaves. They weren't forced into slavery by being kidnapped or conquered. They sold themselves into slavery. Some of them did it to acquire their citizenship as a Roman citizen. Some did it to pay a debt. I mean, we, we, we think about this all the time when we quote Proverbs 22.7. Right? Especially if you're a Dave Ramsey family, and you know this one by heart. The borrower is what? Slave to the lender. We use that figuratively. But it wasn't figurative in the ancient world. It was actually true. If a person owed a debt and could not pay the debt, then they would have to, to give their lender or to whomever it was they owed a debt the only thing they had left to give, which was themselves, their own labor. There was no bankruptcy law in ancient Rome. When you couldn't pay, you sold yourself into slavery. In essence, they signed a contract to be a slave for a period of time. And so vast numbers of Roman slaves were debt slaves, bond servants, maybe even the majority. The situation that forced them into slavery was not race-based. It was more economic-based. Again, they were basically under contract with their master. And I know, again, this, this isn't a perfect comparison, but as I've tried to wrap my mind around this, my mind goes to like the, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, okay? That's where it goes, all right? There with, with Jeffrey the butler, living there with them, the Banks family, eating with them, conversing with them, but serving them and calling everybody master, Master William. You remember Jeffrey say, if you watch that show, and we, we watch the reruns all the time, even now. Again, that's not a perfect thing there, right? It's not a perfect comparison, but it helps me to kind of understand kind of what is the situation here. So there really is something, guys, when you think about seeing parallels between first century slaves and masters and 21st century employees and employers. We're going to get to that in a few minutes, but here, Paul is talking to actual slaves and bond servants. Actual masters, and we can't ignore that because the Bible doesn't. So here's what I believe God would have us to take away from today's message. And here it is. Whatever your position is in life, live every moment for your heavenly master. Live every moment for your heavenly master. And I want to point out two truths here from our text that are going to help us to do that. Live every moment. For your heavenly master. And the first one is this. you got to realize this first truth. Is that we all have a master. We all have a master. This guy, he was riding in the back of an Uber one day. And the driver was just going on and on about how much he loved his job. Oh yeah, man, I love my job. I'm my own boss. Nobody tells me what to do. And then the customer in the back said, hey, turn left up here. And he did it, right? I mean, the irony of that, right? And we all have a master, whether slave or free, whether bondservant or master, whether employer or employee, whether self-employed or other-employed or unemployed. Now, in this passage, bondservants knew that they had a master, right? They served that dude all day long. But what God, through Paul, wanted to make clear is that they had a heavenly master who was above 
their earthly master. Look at verses 5 through 8. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Bond servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So what he's trying to say here, guys, is, is there's, there's a higher motivation to life than Roman law. A, a higher motivation to life than, than American law, right? How do you keep peace and order in the home? Well, there's a heavenly master that they were ultimately serving. They were bondservants, he says, of Christ. Obeying their earthly master as, as they would their heavenly father. Rendering service to their earthly master as they would to the Lord. I find it so interesting that the apostle Paul himself, he applied the word doulos, slave, servant, bond servant, to characterize himself and his relationship to Jesus Christ. For instance, Romans 1.1. How does he introduce himself? He introduces himself as Paul, a doulos of Christ Jesus, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's how the ESV translates that. But he could have used the word slave. He could have used the word bondservant there. A doulos of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.1. Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy. Douloi of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. Titus 1.1. Paul, a doulos of God, a servant of God. So Paul recognized that he was serving a heavenly master and applied that to all Christians with slave, servant, bondservant imagery in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. This is a passage that you probably know well. But maybe you don't think of it as doulos imagery, slave, bondservant, servant imagery. He says, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. That's slavery language. So glorify God in your body. Jesus purchased us. He, glory to God, owns us. And we are to serve him as our master and every person regardless of their position in life is to live in service to him and that's with the motivation in mind with that motivation in mind paul speaks to bond servants about relating to their earthly master because you have a heavenly master you're to treat your earthly master in this way so according to the text they were to do it respectfully with fear and trembling he says that's not shaking in their boots but it's with respect for their master's position for their master's authority especially if the master and bondservant if they were both christian if the bondservant and the master were both christian they were especially to revere one another god says this in paul uh, through paul in, in first timothy 6 verses 1 and 2 listen to what god says through paul here let all who are under a yoke as bondservants again that, that's the word douloi there regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they're brothers 
Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So they were to serve their master respectfully, but also here in Ephesians 6, they're to do it sincerely with a genuine heart from the heart, right? A genuine heart from the heart with a good will, whether the earthly master was watching or not. Think about how this changes your mindset of service. You're not doing it for some dude. You're doing it for God. And guys, again, the same holds true for the 21st century, right? We don't call them masters. We call them bosses is what we would call them today. That's what we have. Slavery's been abolished. But there's that employer-employee relationship. We call them bosses. And we serve our bosses with respect and sincerity because we got a bigger boss. A heavenly boss. And when we do this, when you do this, when I do this, Our heavenly boss, it says, will reward us according to how we serve our boss on earth. Ephesians 6, 8. He says, serve knowing, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. So it doesn't matter what your position in life is. Masters even have a master. Right? I mean, so the bond servants aren't the only ones. They're not the only ones with a master. Everybody has a master. So Paul turns his attention then from bond servants to the earthly master in Ephesians 6 9. He says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. So again, it, it doesn't matter your position in life whether it's a position of authority or subordination, you're to live every moment for your heavenly master. Yes, even earthly masters, right? Even earthly masters have to live under the lordship of their heavenly master. It it says that God shows no partiality. I I love the King James, how it it renders the word partiality. It It renders it as God is no respecter of persons. That's more vivid to me. That makes more sense to what he's actually talking about here. In other words, he he doesn't care what your title is. He's not impressed by your title here on earth. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the master of masters. So earthly masters, you better live in light of that. And in doing so, they would lead their bondservants differently. Bosses supervisors, leaders, those with people under you in some form or fashion, you got to listen up. Here's what Paul says to you and to me in application is stop being a bully. Stop with the threats. If you're a leader who leads by threat, by fear tactics, you're losing. You are not living up to your calling of what God has set up before you. Listen, I've served under leaders, primarily one leader, who used fear as their primary motivator. And I'm just going to tell you, it was miserable. It was miserable. But not only that, in the long run, it's ineffective. It's counterproductive. It turns you as a boss. If you're the type of person who wants to lead by fear, you want to lead by bullying tactics, by threatening, it turns you into a constant 
police officer. Right? If you use these tactics, those under you will resent you. And if you use them and you can't, or you're unwilling to follow through on your threats, then all respect is out the window for you. It's better, as Paul says here, to do good to those who are under you. Motivate through good means treat people with respect. Treat others how you want to be treated. Motivate through good means, positive means, and in doing so, you're going to be more productive, and they will love you. They will love you. We are to be like Jesus, even as a master, a boss, a supervisor, a leader. And Jesus is well-loved, isn't he? By those whom he leads. So whatever your position in life, live every moment for your heavenly master, knowing that everybody has one. Everybody has a master. Knowing that helps us to do that. Here's the second truth that's going to help us. And it's this. Being filled with the Spirit helps us to serve well. Being filled with the Spirit helps us to serve well. I know that I've said this for like five weeks now, right? (laughs) Sorry, I'm going to say it again. We have to see the connection here with with Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit. So as Paul calls on bondservants here to obey their masters and for masters to treat their bondservants well, He doesn't expect them to do it by the power of their flesh. Their flesh was going to fail them, just like the flesh will fail you as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent. It's going to fail you. The flesh will fail you. You need the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he's calling both bondservants and masters here to be spirit-filled doing the things God is calling them to do there in that first century context is by the Spirit and is the fruit of the Spirit. And that goes for us also, though, in the 21st century, doesn't it? Absolutely. You want to be the best employee you, the best employee you can be? Be Spirit-filled. You want to be the best boss you can be? Be Spirit-filled. You'll work differently, You'll lead differently. You'll interact differently. You'll talk to your coworkers about your boss differently. And you who are in leadership in your team leadership meetings, you'll talk about your employees differently. You'll do it in a godly way, a way that's for God. That'll make all the difference in the world, right? So being spirit-filled will empower you and help you to live every moment For your heavenly master, whatever position in life you find yourselves in. Now I want to hit you this morning with two quick bonus truths here. Two quick bonus truths that we've, we've got to hit this. Because the very fact that Paul addresses slavery here and never speaks of abolishing it can be problematic at first glance. In fact, those that hate God, those who hate his word, Use texts like this one right here today to argue against the morality of God. God must not be moral. He's not worthy of our worship. He's not worthy to be followed if if God is is upholding a system like this. This is also a text, though, that people go the other way and use 
to say that slavery should still be in place, that slavery should still be happening. Both of those are wrong. And so i got to hit you with two quick truths, some bonus truths here that we've got to wrestle with as we, again, we're, we're wrestling with this text, man. I mean, I can't even get a read on you guys. Not only do you have face masks on, but you're afraid to amen, and maybe you don't want to amen any of it. <laughs> All right? So two quick bonus truths. The first one is this, is that the gospel is good news in every culture. <laughs> the gospel is good news in every culture. You've got to be careful, again, as I've already said, to, to look at this text from a 21st century eye. Our context, 21st century America, very different from first century Rome. I mean, again, if, if, if it was today, we'd be organizing some sort of hashtag Twitter campaign, right? Guys, slavery is wrong. We say, why can't Paul see this? And the answer is, is that he did see it. Oftentimes in the Bible, things that are there are taken and undermined. We're going to talk about it in a moment. It's undermined, but at the same time, it's regulated in some sense. All right? So, we have to realize not every culture is where our culture is. Not every culture understands the things that we understand, okay? But guess what? The gospel's still good news in that culture. It can penetrate. I mean, guys, this is so true. We see this all throughout history. It can penetrate the most darkened culture in the history of planet Earth. Whatever that culture might be, you fill in the blank on that. And it gives hope to people in that situation. And perhaps this morning, I mean, you, you can't think of a worse culture than one that permits and systematizes the owning and selling of other human beings. But even in those cultures, the gospel invades and the gospel is good news. We might expect Christians, even in the first century, to call for and lead for a governmental revolution, right? To overthrow systems of oppression. But you need to understand this morning that God had and has bigger fish to fry. Listen, Christ had bigger fish to fry. How many times did the disciples ask Jesus? Jesus, when are you going to overthrow these Roman oppressors? And yet Jesus didn't let the overthrowing of Rome get in his way of dying on the cross for our sins. God had, a, had bigger fish to fry, right? So certainly, hear me say this morning that Christianity is a call to change the world around us. But ultimately and most importantly, it's a call to be saved from the world around us, to be set apart from the world around us. God, he's more concerned about us being saved and more concerned about us pleasing, them, pleasing him than, it is, uh, than he is about being out front, leading some governmental revolution. And listen, there are times for that. And when the moment's right, we can give ourselves to that and praise God, Christians have and Christians are. But how many times did Jesus say something like this? My kingdom is not of this world. He didn't come 
to overthrow the world government. He came to establish his kingdom, and in time, it is being established. How many times does the Bible tell us that we're to live ultimately for eternity and not just for this temporary life? Listen, politics and government, I know as much as we love to engage in those things and and, and we depend on those things and we're accustomed to those things. Politics and government structures will not save us. Therefore, it's better according to the word of God, to be a saved slave than it is to be a lost freeman. We read in Galatians 3, 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, it says here, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all in one Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Guys, what that means is that everybody, regardless of their position or status in life, whoever believes on Christ can come in. And that goes for any culture on the planet, whatever positions that culture puts on people, the gospel is able to come in and to give hope, even if nothing ever changes in that culture, even if the structures therein never change, or even if the structures regress. Here's the second quick truth, this bonus truth that I I believe will help us out, and it's this final thing I want to say this morning is that Christian principles undermine the institution of slavery. Christian institutions undermine the institute of slavery. We could spend a long time talking about this, okay? But but just, just, just understand, while Paul didn't call for the eradication of slavery, the radical brotherhood and the radical equality that's explicit in the gospel would be the death knell of slavery. I mean, the fact that Paul even said, even addressed the slaves and addressed the masters in the way that he did was a death knell. It was an it was, it was undermining of the institution of slavery. You think about the truths of the gospel. That slave is made in the image of God. It doesn't matter how much money he has. It doesn't matter what the color of his skin is. It doesn't matter what nationality is. It doesn't matter if he won or lost a war. He's made in the image of God. Jesus died for that slave. That slave is your brother. All of these truths embedded in the gospel leave or lead to an inward transformation. They undermine the institution of slavery. If we were to picture the institution of slavery in history as a fortress castle, okay, our castle fortress, there are four ways that you can attack a castle. You can try to climb over the walls, wouldn't recommend it. You're going to get killed all day long, right? That full frontal assault, right? We're going to take the walls of this castle, and they're going to shoot you 
and throw tar on you and all the things, right? Okay, we're going to get a battering ram the second way. We're going to get a battering ram. We're going to jam it through the door and break the door down and then go in. Well, good chance they're going to pull up the drawbridge. They're going to shoot you with arrows. They're going to shoot you with cannons. They're going to do everything they can to repel you on that frontal attack. Okay, well, I'll just, I'll just the third way, I'll just lay siege to the castle. We'll just set up camp out here. We won't let anybody come in or go out, and we're just going to wait for them all to starve to death, and then we'll win. Well, that doesn't attack the castle. The castle's still standing, right? But the fourth way, the fourth way to attack a castle in medieval days was to undermine it. Not go over the wall, not go through the wall, but to go under the wall. They would literally dig a trench, a tunnel, under the edge of the wall, under the foundation of the castle tower. And they would do it in such a way that they could dig it and run out and then set fire to it, and the whole castle wall would come tumbling down. And the truth of the matter is, oftentimes the people in the castle didn't know what hit them until the castle was fallen and the wall was breached as people ran in. Guys, that's what Paul is doing here in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a full frontal attack on the institution of slavery, the wicked institution of slavery. It's an undermining of it that one day it would collapse. Guys, listen to me. That's why the abolitionist movement around the world and in America has been primarily a Christian movement. And yeah, listen, there's still work to be done because slavery, although outlawed in America and much of the world, it still exists. Like this is the part that we don't realize oftentimes. It still exists. The Walk Free Foundation based on its global slavery index in 2018, listen to this number. It estimated that there are still 40.3 million slaves around the world. 40.3 million slaves around the world. And you know what the answer to that is? Christians who will, with all their power and all the tactics that they can do with under the system that they're in, undermine that. Beloved, whatever position you find yourself in life, live every moment for your heavenly master. Here's my final prayer as the praise team comes. May every one of us here, as bond servants to Christ, may we hear this from our master. Well done, good and faithful doulos. Good and faithful servant.